This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I talked to composer Tina Davidson recently, her life story could have been a movie. I mean, a drama for sure. She was born in Sweden, and she was raised in a foster family. When she was three and a half years old, she was adopted by an American English professor. Well, she discovered that professor was actually her biological mother, and that's only the beginning. She said learning all this about herself was one of the reasons she started to compose. We're going to hear that story, and we'll hear about her piece, Hymn of the Universe, and the other works on this new recording. Tina Davidson is the composer. This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. I want to start off by talking about the memoir that you released earlier this year. It's called Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. And it's the story of your life, which is pretty incredible. I mean, this could be a movie. When I started to read a little bit about it, and I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your journey, because I know you... Uh, were a child in foster care in Sweden, and eventually you became a prolific pianist and composer. How does that happen? Can you tell us a little bit about your life? Yeah, so I was in in foster care for about three and a half years in Sweden. And um, then my uh, mother came and uh, adopted me uh, and brought me to America. She was a, a professor, an English professor. And shortly after she adopted me, she married uh, my stepfather. They were both professors, but they were actually, I think they were adventurers disguised as professors. So they really wanted to travel the world and, uh, you know, earn a living by teaching. And so we lived in Istanbul, Turkey for three years. We lived in Germany. We lived in Israel. And then uh, a year each in those countries. And then they went off when I was in college and they were living in Santiago, Chile. Um, And just as a side note, they decided at the end of their year and a half there that they would drive back to Pittsburgh that's like 15,000 miles. It was like kind of crazy. But that was the sort of the spirit of who they were. And my mother, since she was an amateur violinist, always got me to play the piano. And I didn't grow up with any aspirations of being a composer. I didn't actually know that women could compose. It never occurred to me. And I think it speaks to when you don't have a role model, it's hard sometimes to even imagine yourself in that place. So when I went to Bennington College, they actually believed that all performers, and I was a good pianist at that point, should be composers and all composers should be performers. And so they threw me into a composition class. And I would say after one semester, I was completely hooked. It was really what I wanted to do more than anything else. 
Wow, you just did an amazing job telling me your life story very concisely. I'm so impressed. Do you mind if I ask how old were you when you were in foster care and why were you in foster care? Well, it's kind of an interesting twist uh, to my story. I was three and a half years in this family. Uh, They were living in the southern Sweden, southernmost Sweden, and uh, the foster mother was Solveig, and I had three older brothers, and one of whom was, oh, just a couple of months older than I was. And for those three years, we were brought up as twins. And then one day, this, this beautiful American woman came. She lived in the area for a month or two, and she adopted me and brought me to America. And so I I always, you know, I was never treated any differently. You know, uh, she subsequently had four more children. I was the oldest of five. But I always was sort of haunted by this sense that I didn't belong, that, you know, that I didn't have any roots, that I, you know, that I, I wanted to know where the body was that I came from. I wanted to know. So they talked a lot about Davidson history, but I always knew it wasn't my history. So when I was 21, I happened to be back in Sweden babysitting for the summer, a 13-year-old daughter of a friend of mine, decided I would just go to the adoption agency. Uh, Just, you know, why not? I I sort of wanted to find out, you know, if I was that little Swedish girl. And when I got there, she had a letter and she was reading it. And she said, finally, she said, your adopted mother is your biological mother. You were adopted by your biological mother. And then everything sort of shifted and turned for me because um, it was such a shock to know that I had been living under this assumption, under this word adoption, under those feelings of being adopted, not knowing where I came from. But that wasn't actually true. I had been living with my mother. So it, I think that was also one of the reasons that I wanted to write music. It was a way of me talking about my life and exploring my life, but being very private about it. You know, you can't listen to a piece of music and say, ooh, you're, you're angry at your mother. <laughs> so I think that composing has always been a vehicle for me to understand myself and to grow in that understanding. So as I write music about myself, and I'm not saying that I write in a sort of egotistical way, but it's sort of like I'm the template and I'm trying to explore what is my connection to family, to life, to nature. And especially in this uh, this album, Hymn of the Universe, what is my connection to larger things like spiritual connections. So um, it has always been a place of finding who I was. And in a funny way, when I write about myself, my music then comes back and teaches me also more about myself. So there's this wonderful sort of reciprocality in, in the music. You also discovered something really interesting about your biological father along the way. Can you talk about that and how that's impacted you, perhaps? Well, my mother, in her kind of very crazy, I don't know, um, she decided that I should go away to school, and she said that I could live with this family in the last year of this schooling. I had boarded. 
for a year. And then she said, oh, this family really would like to take you in and it will help you with the costs of of the boarding school. Uh, And this was in Philadelphia. So I lived with this family, the Chance family, for a year, not knowing that he was my father. (laughs) So, you know, it was very interesting to get to know him that way. I was sort of like the perfect outside child. You know, I was studying hard. I practiced the piano a couple hours a day uh, during my last year of high school. And he was a very famous uh, biochemist, biophysicist research. Uh, And so I sort of gained entrance into that world of research and exploration. So... I'm sorry, I have to ask you a couple more questions about this because it's so fascinating to me. (laughs) Why was it your mother was so mysterious about this, not telling you that she was your biological mother and you were going to go... Yes, very good question because I think by our terms, our standards, we go, oh, that was really weird. I was born in the 50s. You know, having, being an illegitimate child, bearing an illegitimate child in the 50s, was really going to ruin her career as a professor. And she had gotten her PhD from University of Pennsylvania. Hardly any women got PhDs at that point. Uh, So she was a real crusader. I think in her mind, it was a way of protecting herself and me, that she could bring me back. There would be no questions asked. She could just go about life. I think the difficult part was that then she started to not really be able to accept that she could ever talk about it. And and when I started to finally ask questions and told her, look, I know, she was very defensive and angry because she always carried that sense of paranoia with herself um, that somebody would find out. And then I think, you know, when you live in... Um, when you live with secrets that are, you know, everybody's entitled to privacy, of course. But this was a secret that involved me. Uh, she didn't tell anybody. She never told her mother. She didn't tell my stepfather. Um, and then I think, as I write in my book, those kinds of secrets start to control you. Uh, you start to make decisions around them. You might not even recognize that you're doing that. And I, I call it a, a Frankenstein of your own devising. It becomes a kind of a cruel puppeteer. And I think that was the trap that she finally found herself in. How has this story impacted your music, the music that you compose? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, when my daughter was born, that was when I really decided that I needed to do some therapy and really tackle this. I had the sense that I was going to give all this damage to my daughter uh, if I didn't work on it. Um, So I really started to work on it. I connected back to Sweden. I connected back to my foster family. Um, What I found out is that actually I had been grieving the loss of my Swedish mother, my foster mother. She was like my first mother. And when I left, It was like a bomb exploded in their house and they all died. And then I couldn't talk about it because my mother, you know, brought me up as an adopted child. So why would I talk about this relationship? 
uh, with my foster mother. So then I started writing a lot of music about that. I have a cello, a four cello piece, a cello quartet piece called Dark Child Sings. And it was that dark child in me that needed a voice. I have a multiple saxophone piece called Transparent Victims. The idea that there are so many of us who walk around who have these deep hurts that we can't see, um, you know, that, that are invisible to our eyes. And it's interesting that all of these, a lot of these pieces were four similar instruments. I was also really working hard on integrating myself, bringing all these parts of myself together into one story. And, um, and in my music at that point, I was dealing with a lot of integration issues. A lot of times those instruments were all sort of fractured and towards the end of the piece, they would come together and, you know, sing as one. So I think um, definitely my personal issues were reflected in my music. Um, and it was another way of um, doing therapy about them in a funny way. You were in a foster care in Sweden. Were you born in Sweden? I was born in Sweden and I spoke Swedish. So when I left Sweden, I lost my home, my country, my language, my family. Um, what I remember is that uh, when I was three and a half, everything was dark backwards. And then suddenly there was light going forward. So I had, you know, until I really started doing some serious therapy, I had no memories uh, of my, my past. I want to transition now to your latest recording, Hymn of the Universe. How did this come together? Because as I'm looking at the pieces on this recording, they were actually recorded many years ago. Why pull them all together now on this recording? Well, as many composers know, to get your work out in recording, it costs so much money if you're going to hire a new choir to come and sing it. And I thought, geez, there's this beautiful recording. Yeah, it has a few coughs in it, but really a beautiful recording. Why not get the rights to put it out there? And so that's what I did. This piece I wrote, I'm actually not 100% sure when I wrote it, but I think I'm pretty sure it was like in the early 2000s, like 2002 or something like that. The genesis of the piece is that I was in Kansas City an ensemble was playing a piece of mine and I was staying at the board member's house of Kansas City Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra. And she turns out she worked in, in business. She was a, an executive, but she had been a former nun. And we were doing a lot of talking and she said, I think you should read the books of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and I think you should write a piece about it. And I thought, okay. So I went to the library and I got out all my Chardin. Um, he's kind of pithy to read, but I read all the books that I could. Um, and I started to really resonate with his sense that we are all evolving. He's such an interesting Catholic priest. Uh, he was a Jesuit and they're always uh, very interesting. And they always, they seem to think outside of the box uh, and so I just became really smitten by 
his idea that we are constantly evolving and that we're sort of evolving towards God. Um, I am not a Christian, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but that sense that we're evolving to a higher place uh, is very resonant for me. And so I created, I excerpted texts from uh, three of his works um, and created this piece, Hymn of the Universe. It's for SATB, so soprano, alto, tenor, bass, string quartet, marimba, and English horn. And I love the English horn. It's the older brother of the oboe. It's a little bit lower. It's a little bit darker in sound. It's not quite as nasal as the oboe, just a little bit more laid back. Uh, and marimba, I use a lot of marimba. It's kind of this great consolidator of sound. Uh, so I, I really love that mix. Can you walk us through each of the movements? What are we hearing? And is there a moment in each of these pieces that you really want us to focus in on? There are four movements. The first one is a, a, called the offering. And I think he was, um, I think the Catholic Church didn't like what he was saying. And so they were sending him off to like Tibet and China. And uh, he was a paleontologist as well. So he had discovered some ancient bones that I've forgotten what they were. Uh, but So they kept on sending him away. And I think he was coming up, he was taking this long uh, walk up a mountain and he got to the top just as sunrise. And that sense of, for him, not only meeting nature, which he really felt resonated with God, but meeting God. And so he says in the beginning of this piece, you know, since once again, I've come, I've come here and I have nothing to give you because I came empty handed. So I will give you myself. that idea of almost you are so one with nature and one with God that there's no, you give yourself over. You completely leave your uh, yourself and become one with, with whatever you're, you're looking at. So the offering is about that. And the end of the piece is, um, I think, very resonant for me because he says that what we really want is Yet at the very depth of this formless mass, you have implanted a desire, irresistible. Which makes us cry out, Lord, make us one. 
of a mystical, almost like you're a dervish and you're whirling and you're whirling and you're whirling and suddenly you're exhausted, but your heart goes up to God. And that's actually a theme in a lot of my music. You know, that that moment where that physical energy expires and you become this energy that's connected to something bigger than yourself. Number two is Fold Your Wings. And it's really about the soul. Fold your wings, my soul. Wings you spread wide to soar to the peaks where the light is most ardent. It is for you simply to await the descent of the fire. Again, that sense of your job is your soul is just wait for the union with something larger. Matter, which is the third movement. He had this wonderful sense of being so attracted just to dirt and soil and, you know, the bones of the earth. So the beginning of this, blessed be you, harsh matter, barren soil, stubborn rock, you who yield only to violence, you who force us to work if we would eat. It's a lot of men's voices and that sense of kind of being part of the earth. And when I wrote this, I think this movement is about six minutes. I, I really wanted you to get a sense of sort of the relentlessness of this, of that relationship and of the earth and the sort of the cragginess and uh, the harshness. And again, he says at the end of the third movement, raise me up then matter to those heights through struggle and separation and death. Raise me up until at long last it becomes possible for me to embrace the universe. And the last movement is, is kind of a prayer. He had some very favorite quotes from the Bible in Latin, Mane Nobuscum Domine, and it's just this minute and a half a cappella Stay with us, Lord, because it is towards evening. And I love that sense of, you know, it's getting dark. It's a little worrisome right now. Would you stay with us so we can transfer over to the darkness in peace?
From what I read, this piece was commissioned by Philip Brunel and the Vocal Essence Singers in 2003. Why did they commission this work? Well, the first piece on this, uh, Antiphon for a Virgin, they had performed that piece a lot. That was from a set of music where I was exploring the female face of God. And it's called River of Love, River of Light. And they were really looking at the Virgin of Guadalupe and how she, how they used her to sort of bridge the gap between their beliefs at that time and Catholicism that had come down. So I had used two of uh, Hildegard of Bingham, but again, this idea that you couldn't really have Jesus unless there was a woman, that through her, uh, Jesus is born. And, and so how Hildegard of Bingham really felt that that was such an essential part of the Christian viewpoint. Uh, so that had been a piece of, I think that was a seven set uh, exploration of the female f- face of God. I guess they really loved it because when I heard the performance of it, they had actually memorized it, which is very unusual to memorize contemporary music. And they sang it a lot. And I think they just, you know, they just wanted to hear more. So they commissioned this piece. And I really appreciate that they were willing to allow me to write such a long piece Um A lot of times music ensembles, they want new works, but they want them short because they want to do the Beethoven or the, you know, whatever. And that takes a lot of time. But to be able to write a piece that was uh, close to 25 minutes uh, was a real opportunity. There is a different ensemble featured on the final piece on this recording, the Society for Universal Sacred Music. Yes, and Roger Davidson founded that, and he uh, conducted it. He's a, a great composer. It has been disbanded, so it's not on everybody's tongue, but they were really commissioning works, uh, contemporary works that were spiritual. Again, this was a quote from the Bible, or maybe even a quote from Chardin himself, which was this idea that uh, that God breaks you down and then reforms you. Uh, so that's what the piece is about. Tina, how has your growth as a spiritual being impacted your compositions? You know, it's really through my music that I'm always exploring that, or did for a good 20 years. So in the almost 50 years that I've been composing, I would say the first decade, I was really kind of lost. I didn't really have an understanding of who I was. Uh, But the second decade, I was really uh, starting to write music about 
my personal journey. The third and the fourth decade was all about my connection to spirituality. And as I mentioned before, a lot of times I was interested in how energy flows, how our physical energy flows. And since I'm writing about myself, I'm always like in my body, like, how do I move? What happens when I become exhausted? You know, all those kinds of interests in physical energy and how it moves and transforms. Um, when I wrote my piece for Hilary Hahn, she commissioned me uh, a blue curve of the earth. You know, it it's all about energy, moving energy, and how that energy moves through the world and to something that's outside of the world, to more of a spiritual or an uplifted place. Um, now in this last decade, I don't know, I think my music is becoming very personal again. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I try not to ask my music to explain itself all the time. Um, but I'm writing pieces like um, Hum, uh, which is uh, for a cello and piano. And it's just about humming, you know, that sense of humming and this sound coming out of your, you know how people hum and you hear them. Another one is called um, Leap is when I wrote that about the pandemic, how we sort of leapt into the pandemic and then how we then left the pandemic uh, in a different place. So it's a lot more, personal right now. What do you have coming up that you're really excited about? I, I'm actually really excited about writing about music. I found that uh, people really were responding to me, articulating, giving words to fleshing out to what my process is and how to help people who aren't used to contemporary music feel closer to it. So I'm really interested in that. But, um, you know, I, I sort of love writing music and I do a lot of pastels. I just I think I'm just in a place now where I'm just allowing my creativity to go all over the place. I'm writing a piano piece right now um, and I want to write some more strings. I've written a lot of string works. I love strings. And um, so did I just hear you say you're also a visual artist? Yes, I do a lot of pastels. In fact, the cover of Hymn of the Universe is based on one of my pastels. Okay. I was going to ask you which inspires which, whether it's the music that inspires the, the, the pastels or vice versa, or maybe both. I think maybe at a certain age, I just don't care where the creativity comes out of. And um, it's just kind of, I would say it's oozing now, as opposed to before it was very focused and very intense. You know, my relationship with music in my 30s and 40s and 50s was extremely intense. It was like I had another life uh, and I'd go into my studio and I would live that life. And sometimes I'd be angry at the music. I would feel like when I left the studio, I wasn't doing anything, you know, I was just recovering. <laughs> <laughs> like, and sort of like, I felt like my music had all the fun, but I think now as I'm older and I just feel it's just sort of coming out and coming out in a, 
all over the place as opposed to in one direction. And I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in the aging process and creativity. You know, what happens? Uh, some people, you know, I can only tell you my story, but what happens when you get older and you have different concerns or you have different kind of energy levels? What do you think has allowed you to finally get into that oozing phase where things just happen? Um, and maybe it's maybe it is just maturity, as we like to say, as we get older. <laughs> I think uh, to some degree, my second marriage, which was a very difficult marriage and uh, that I left 10 years ago, was a time when I realized that it was OK to be alone and to just create my own wonderful life. And that was 10 years ago. And I have really created this amazing 10 years of not only creativity, but having a home that I love, having my little dogs, having a garden. And I think that that ease in my relationship with my life has allowed me to um, sit and be less driven and therefore I can ooze. It's not a very attractive word, but I spread, you know, it spreads. It's not quite as focused, not quite as intense. Um, it is a whole different kind of rhythm and also, you know, getting older. And uh, I, love that idea of exploring myself as a 70-year-old, as a creative 70-year-old, and not making excuses about it or pretending to be younger, but like, what are the riches that I have here now that I want to share in my music and in other ways? Finally, I will ask you, if a young budding composer came to you and said, what do I need to do to be a successful composer? What might you tell them? So I have a good answer for you. Uh, I've just been forming a collective of composers. They happen to be women composers, and we are now going online. We call ourselves the Composer Posse, but we go online and we hold sessions for composers of all ages. Uh, to talk about those things. What do you need? We just did a session on balance, work-life balance, and some were young and had kids, some were fighting their way through university systems. And our next session will be on networking, which is how do you have relationships, not just with publicity, but with performers, with audience. So let's not talk just about publicity, but how do you encourage relationships, which is how you get your music across so I think I would also say to a young composer, let your heart be broken, which brings us back to my memoir. And that came from something that was said to me, uh, Stephen Levine, who was a wonderful writer, and he did a lot of work with death and dying. And he said, some audience member, I was at a symposium, and someone asked, you know, what is the meaning of life? And he said, you know, I really don't know. But I think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken. So this is what I write about that. The heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken 
allow, expect, look forward to the life you have so carefully protected and cared for. Broken, cracked, rent in two, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks, and in the two halves rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. So that idea of allowing your life to not only break you, but to inform you and to give you that impetus for new life, which is creation. Uh, however you're going to create your life, whether you are an artist or a mother or a business worker, that you then, that that creative impulse belongs to you at that point. Hymn of the Universe is the new recording featuring composer Tina Davidson with performances featuring vocal lessons with Philip Brunel conducting and the Society for Universal Sacred Music with Roger Davidson conducting. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. <laughs>